0: Welcome back, everybody. Uh, just a quick little intro this week. Uh, as we mentioned last week, no no DVD or Blu-ray reviews this week. But I did have the chance to uh, talk with Paul Benedict Rowan mm. for an hour. He is an Irish journalist who wrote the, the book Making Ryan's Daughter, The Myths, Madness, and Mastery, which is available right now on Amazon. And uh, you can get a Kindle or paperback um it's an amazing book it's 300 and almost 320 pages of the story of the making of the movie that nearly ended david lean's career and um you know tim that was such an interesting period i mean it was Mm. was 1970 69 70 and all those old guard directors were going away they were kind of breathing their last gasp we well, yeah the studio system itself was changing um, uh, you had the um, uh, the young the young bucks coming in uh you had you had actors movie stars setting up their own production companies and taking over studios in some cases uh and the powers that had been for the previous what thirty five years forty years yeah. Uh, were, yeah were were slipping away yeah it's 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 a fascinating moment there's some uh, so many good parts of the book which is not just about the filmmaking it's not just about you know uh, going to Ireland and this movie that took over a year to shoot and the the bad weather and spending weeks at a time waiting to shoot 10 seconds you know it's not just that it's about how MGM as a company was changing and how uh, even during the course of this this year plus of shooting there was all this turbulence going on I mean I I, I learned so much reading this book it's a it's a really good book so um, without further ado, here is uh, my interview with Paul Benedict Rowan on his book, Making Ryan's Daughter, The Myths, Madness, and Mastery. It is my enormous privilege today to be talking uh, with Paul Benedict Rowan, the author of Making Ryan's Daughter, The Myths, Madness, and Mastery, which is one of the most uh, remarkable making-of movie books I've read in a very, very long time. Um, just as a quick introduction, Paul Benedict Rowan is a, an Irish journalist, and uh, he has uh, written for the BBC World Service. And he has been a a regular writer for the uh, Sunday Times for the better part of the last uh, two two decades, writing on sports and news and everything else. And and um, Paul, talk about I mean Ryan's daughter. Just to sort of preface it for people, was it was almost David Lean's last film. As it turned out, it wound up being his second to last film. But it took him more than a decade to get to get around to making a Passage to India. And Ryan's Daughter just came around right at a sea change in the history of the movies when everything was kind of leaving the 50s and 60s behind and moving into the grittier and more rough-and-tumble 70s. And all the the old-school directors were sort of being left behind. And Lean was coming off of his greatest success in in Dr. Zhivago with two Best Picture winners prior to that, Bridge of the River Kwai and Lawrence of Arabia. How could Ryan's Daughter fail, and yet fail it did, and the backstory to it lends so much information into that. How did you come up? Obviously, this, this it ties in. If, if you're Irish, you know a great deal about Ryan's Daughter. It's kind of a legendary shoot. But talk about what led you to do this, because you did these interviews over a very long period of time.
1: Yeah, I, I, even going back to the last millennium, um, it in if if, 1999, I, I kind of started my work on researching the book. and. Um, and, and and really uh, there was an intense period uh, over the turn of the millennium where I did most of my interviews. So I traveled to Los Angeles to speak to some people over there, or do some research. Um, I live in London, so all the technical crew who worked on Ryan's daughter, a lot of them were still living within a sort of a 50-mile radius of London. Uh, most of them were kind of retired um, and had time to sit down and reflect on that extraordinary 18 months or so that some of them spent in Dingle in county Kerry in Ireland, making that film all the way back um in uh nineteen sixty nine some of them that were there from nineteen sixty eight to nineteen seventy so um it was epic in in lots of different ways and um so i i obviously, I, I as a journalist uh, I, I my curiosity was pricked i suppose by um you know visiting Kerry and hearing the stories about uh hollywood coming to uh rural ireland in the late 60s which was a, a very I, I i don't want to use the word backward but it was a it was a place still back in the 30s really in lots of different ways like there would only just have been sort of, they recently would have only had television there and electricity would have been only sort of it would have been there for about 10 years or so so very simple kind of peasant kind of uh, lifestyle most people well,
0: and, and you you, you... You even say in the book that there everything had to. Go, they still didn't have direct dialing. They had to go through the switchboard. Uh, there was only one black and white television at the at the Skellig Hotel, where which only the television came on at five p.m. with children's shows and went for a couple of hours and ended with Bewitched. I mean, you really depict very much the the the, the, the how how many decades behind they were from what we sort of normally associate with the rest of the world.
1: Yeah, I, I suppose uh, probably direct dialing in the States would have been well in at that stage um, and, and probably the, a large part of the rest of the Western world. But um, in Dingle, you know, if you wanted to get through to Robert Mitchum's place, it was still you had to go through the operator who'd uh, stitch it through. It was, his number would have been something like Dingle 5-8 or something like that, or, you know, Dingle 1 or something like it was as simple as that. Um, so uh, and she might have a, she might listen in as well while, while, while you were having a conversation with. With the, with the great man, right? Um, but um, yeah, so um, yeah, I mean, it's it, uh, as I say, it, Dingle was a, um, it was a kind of a, um, it, it, it was really a small Irish town that was uh, steadily declining from its peak, uh, which was really going back to maybe a couple of centuries before. Really, they depended a lot for their income on emigres in the US sending back money. Um, and then some of them would have lived off handouts, done a bit of farming, done a bit of this, done a bit of that, done a bit of fishing. Um, and then, so when Ryan's daughter came along, it was like manna from heaven. Uh, the 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 Faraway Productions, the David Lean's company, which made the film, you know, were paying kind of uh, ten times the rates that these people were normally used to. And Ryan's daughter people were quite clever. They 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 really got the locals on side by. By employing them for one thing, and by spending their money in Dingle in the, on the, shop, in the shops and stuff, in the pubs as well, or lots of it. And, um, and, and so they kept the money local, and uh, local people loved them for that. Uh, they, could, they could have spent, they could have brought in outside people to supply, do all the supplies, but they didn't. You know, they, they had plenty of money. As you say, after Doctor Zhivago, which was certainly probably Lean's most profitable film. Well, some, a lot of people would say it wasn't one of his better films. But it was made, it made, it, Lean made money hand over fist on that movie. Um, you know, the, Lean could do no wrong, really coming into Ryan's Daughter, even though as you, as you said in your intro there, the, um, the movie times were changing. Um, a lot of the, uh, MGM was, was doing quite badly financially at the time and uh, they were seen to be old fashioned and making a lot of old fashioned movies. And Ryan's Daughter kind of fitted into that category. Uh, they had a lot of upheaval in MGM at the time. There was three or four different owners, three or four different presidents coming in, all trying to rescue the the, the company, all, all trying to get a bit of the glamour of of You know, th- these were guys who had previously worked like Seagrams, like Bromfman, Edward Edgar Bromfman. He he ran Seagrams, but yeah. they all seemed to be attracted to the film industry, even though some of them knew little or nothing about it. And um, eventually, it was Kirk Kerkorian who who uh, who, who who you'll know, um, who, who took over MGM and brought in a guy called James Jim Aubrey, the Smiling Cobra, who who was just a kind of a cost cutter and a slasher, and basically no movie was going to cost over one or two million dollars to make. And *Ryan's Daughter*, even at that stage, was was heading into being a fifteen million dollar movie. But it was it was too late for Aubrey. He stopped a lot of movies at the time being made. Um, Zinnemann's movie uh, *Man's Fate* was 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 axed. Even though the sets had already been built on Pinewood Studios and hmm. Kubrick's Napoleon, that was that was iced as well. So Lean was far enough down the tracks so that uh, Aubrey couldn't stop him, and, and, and MGM as well. They were hoping that that Ryan's daughter was going to really kind of save the company. That that was the feeling at the time.
0: Wow. Hmm. And and uh, you know your own fascination with this. I mean, you've committed a lot of time over the years to this story. What what does it mean to you personally?
1: Um, <clears throat> good question. I, like I I would like Wade on unlike you. You know, you 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 probably maybe love the film. I I love the film in terms of the the scenery and the, the landscape and all the rest of it. I I see some of the problems and I can see why. A lot of people didn't like it, but I suppose um, it, it wasn't it wasn't from watching the film that I would have been uh, become, I suppose, obsessed about Ryan's daughter. It was really from hearing the stories about how it was made and, and, and all that. And mm. uh, you know, I wouldn't have really regarded myself as a film buff, probably unlike you. Uh, you know, I come just more from a kind of a journalistic background in terms of, you know, spotting a good story and, and, and running with it um, can take me anywhere, really. Um and um so yeah but but the more i researched it the more i became kind of um i suppose kind of in love with some of the figures even though they were dead at this stage like i i think i kind of fell in love with with mitchum and and i i kind of fell in love with lean as well um and i just had massive respect for them in terms of what they you know reading up what they'd achieved in their careers you know coming from completely different perspectives and you know they they didn't really get on, but I, I think they had a lot of respect for each other at the same time. And and um, and uh, yeah, I suppose um, it was also fascinating in that I was exploring. You know, once I started doing the research, I met a lot of really kind of fascinating and and kind of colourful personalities. You know, people who worked in the film industry who are who who you know who 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 had a lot of um, you know. Color, you know, they they were great. say great characters and uh, had great stories to tell and. And, and were strong personalities didn't mind calling it as they as it was, you know, didn't mind um, necessarily if necessary criticizing David Lean, even though they would have had massive respect for him, you know. So so I was I was getting a level of frankness about you know from my research that I was really kind of thrilled by, you know, like uh, I went to see the producer Anthony Havelock Allen, who you know he was living he lived in in sort of West London, you know, kind of a nice uh, Georgian house there and he he, you know, he spoke to me for 90 minutes or so even though he, like he he was getting close to 100 his mind was still sharp as a tack really um and uh you yeah, he he kind of lambasted the film and and lambasted Mitchum and and it was very critical of David Lean even though Lean was a great friend of his um and 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 even though Anthony Havelock Allen made a lot of mo- money out of Ryan's daughter himself and it's probably his biggest credit that he had in his long career so yeah, it was just um it was really refreshing meeting all these kind of curious characters who I hadn't really hadn't really entered that milieu before. Um and I I found people so helpful and I'm not trying to be sound sycophantic here but people like um David Lean's biographer uh Kevin Brownlow, you know, he kind of just basically opened his library and said, you know, take what you want really, you know, and it was just an extraordinary level of generosity uh so yeah, so so, so the, the more I kind of researched it, the more I, the, the fonder I, I grew of the whole of the whole uh, film and everything around it, really. And I, I think the, bo- the the book is quite critical. Uh, um, you know, Lean made a lot of wrong decisions in terms of when he made the movie, and um, uh, and and, and there the, the was there was probably they probably didn't do their homework properly in terms of you know the Irish weather, how it was going to mess around with the schedule and all the rest of it. Um, but I hope that my respect for Lean and 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 the others, you know, comes across in the book.
0: It it does very much. And and you know what what I most love about the book because I've read all the existing, you know, I've read uh, Adrian Turner's biography of Bolt. I've read Brownlow's biography. But Brownlow's been very very kind with me as well. Uh, you know, when I've needed some things, he's been a wonderful resource. I know Stephen Silverman, who wrote the original Lean bio, and of course I've read Eddie Fowley's dedicated maniac memoirs. And, and yeah. they all paint a picture. But your book fills in all the blanks. I feel as though it's... it's um, They all just provided the mortar, but you've provided the bricks, as far as this film is concerned. Yeah, I And, I and the thing uh, is, I, when I, you
1: talk... Go on, sorry. Yeah, keep
0: going. No, uh, well, I, I was going to say j- 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 really quickly that that you know Ryan's daughter does kind of get short shrift because obviously it's the it's the, the film that of his latter part of the career that doesn't stand out of his last uh, five films. It's the only one that wasn't nominated for Best Picture and Best Director and all of that, and and so it's they the, tend to sort of skirt the, past one... it. But I think it's a real cautionary tale.
1: Yeah, it's kind of considered to be the runt in the litter, isn't it? You know what I mean, like uh,
0: yeah, which is really, really unfair on it.
1: Like, um, uh, and, and 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 that sounds a bit flippant, but but really, that's that's the reality. I mean, like as you pointed out, there, Lane was on an incredible, uh, you know, winning streak. You know, going from uh, when he when he when he turned to Hollywood to make his movies, which really was Bridge on the River Kwai back in the late fifties when Sam Spiegel yeah. um basically got commissioned him to, to to shoot that film uh which they shot in um in in Solon, it was called as it was called at the time Sri Lanka um and and that was a kind of a test for for David Lean you know could could he could he hack it you know in the, in the jungle and by god he could you know he, he 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 thrived in that kind of environment um and then he went on to even Excel himself even more by making Lawrence of Arabia um, in Jordan and elsewhere in the desert. Incredibly difficult film to shoot and uh, huge logistics and uh, all sorts of problems. But these movies were all incredibly successful. Dr. Zhivago, they all, I mean, I think by the time, um, I think they'd won something like 19 Oscars, those three films um, yeah. alone. And then, so he was coming into Ryan's Daughter, as I say. So, um, so I, I hope I hope I haven't forgotten the question you asked me originally
0: there, Wade. But um... well, what I what I what I was where I was going with this was that that um, people tend to overlook it or pass over it because it's not yeah. one of the great exclamation points in his exactly. career. But what I love in this book is that is that right now we are going through kind of another sea change in the entertainment business. Uh, studios are consolidating. Streamers are coming up um obviously the pandemic has exacerbated a lot of these things and people are wondering what's the future of movies very much a question they were asking in 1969 and 70 and so i see certain parallels in reading the book um you know Mm -hmm. for example the the and we and we should point out too that this was shot on the dingle peninsula in in southwestern ireland which as you point out in the book is as far west as you can go in europe unless you count iceland it is Mm -hmm. It is the furthest, the furthest Western part. It's, it just, it's that, 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 you know, there's these little kind of wind whipped fingers down there in lower, lower Ireland, and it sticks right out there. And it it just, all of that stuff would have been done by CGI today. They wouldn't have built an entire village. They would have just created it on a computer. So there's something really rustic and pioneering about this story that is very, very uh, cautionary for today too.
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, it's funny because The actors like uh, there is a dispute which is the most western point of 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 Europe. It depends how you read the, the whatever it is. It's either Portugal or it's or it's Dingle Peninsula. But Dingle is the, is the closest uh, place in Europe to America. So you know it's got a special yeah. resonance in that sense. Um, uh, but but um, like for instance well <clears throat> they they were trying to um, shoot a storm scene in Ryan's daughter. And and of course, nowadays, they'd they'd be able to kind of use CGI and all the rest of it. Um, Pre-Ryan's Daughter, before Ryan's Daughter, a lot of storm scenes were getting shot in studios using kind of massive tanks and all that kind of thing. Um, So uh, for a lot of this, for a lot of the uh, sea scenes, um, Trevor Howard, who, who, uh, you know, himself and John Mills were, were involved in a very nasty accident while trying to row a Kirk, um into, into a beach um, while shooting one of the scenes. They got hit by a wave and um, knocked out of the boat. And they were badly knocked, uh, badly sort of shaken up. And John Mills was unconscious for a little while. And very, it was too dangerous. You know, it was a very, very dangerous um, shoot. And, uh, and, and sort of Howard was complaining afterwards. He was saying, in the old days, we would have shot that in the studio, you know, with, with, in, in, in a tank. And, and and then of course, you know, and then you read you read it and you think, well, yeah, and now these days they would have CGI'd virtually that whole thing. Um so so, sure. so Lean was trying to Lean was looking for this incredibly incredible level of authenticity that a lot of that only someone like him, you know, with his status, you know, could really kind of demand from the studios, you know, that they give him the time, you know, and and and, and, the, and the money to take as long as he liked really to make that movie. And nobody could tell him to hurry up, you know. No, nobody could really sort of crack the whip um, because uh, you know he, he simply wouldn't do it. And um, so, so yeah, it's uh, it's extraordinary film to watch in that sense. Um, you know, the, the, they had to wait and wait and wait and wait for the storm. Like they were, they were told that there would be plenty of storms. You know that they'd, they'd be sick of the, sto- the amount of storms they'd get, and they didn't. They didn't get any storm in the in the they were supposed to they, they um in the winter of sixty eight sixty nine was was uh, Ireland was becalmed. it was it was stormless and um so what they did was when they were they were expected to shoot the storm period, uh, scenes during that they kept the actors in Dingle virtually for a whole year waiting for the next winter and next summer uh, next winter to for the storms to, you know so so a lot of the Irish actors spent the whole year in Dingle literally in the pub um you know are trying to get out stay out of the pub just waiting and waiting and waiting for a storm and so the costs sort of and rocketed and, and and um and and of course you know they were all they, they couldn't they were all sort of they, they had to stay within a sort of 20 mile radius of jingle you know in, in case suddenly you know that they were they were called to, to, to get before the camera so you know so so there was it became a very kind of cloistered environment in jingle and 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 they almost became like kind of gossipy villagers themselves in a way um and they were gossiping with each other and sort of having affairs and everything else and um and and uh, going you know having wild parties and uh and the local
0: people were kind of agog at what was what was happening on their doorsteps really um so well, yeah, you... yeah. You have so many wonderful stories in there, and I won't spoil any of it for for our our listeners who will who whom I'm going to encourage to to definitely read it. But in the accident that you just mentioned with uh, Trevor Howard and uh, John Mills when the boat overturned, you have a wonderful line in there describing the local physician and why John Mills did not want to go see him. And I think it's just it's a beautiful turn of the phrase, and it's it's part of what I think makes the book so fun to read. Um, speaking of the parties, I mean, I I you know reading about Robert Mitchum grabbing his German hunting knife and chasing a local around uh, the rented mansion of Robert yeah. Bolt and Sarah Miles. I I laughed, you know, you have so many great anecdotes in there.
1: Well, you know, who showed me that knife? Cause um, I went to Spain. Uh, I, I mentioned earlier that a lot of the technical crew were sort of scattered around London. Um, some of them were also in Spain um, because that's where uh, lean had made Dr. Chivago. He made Dr. Chivago he shot Doctor Zhivago, obviously a, a film based in Russia. He 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 built um, Moscow on a set outside of uh, Madrid, and uh, so so Doctor Zhivago was shot entirely, almost entirely in Spain. Um, and and, and he really and, and Lean loved working in Spain. He loved he loved. I, I think he was you know his politics didn't you know they, he wouldn't have been ext- as extreme as General Franco, who was the Spanish dictator at the time, but. His politics—he would, 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 would have been comfortable enough there. So a lot of his, some of his technical crew came from Spain. So I, I went to Madrid, and I went down to see Eddie Fowley, who who, who was living in um, in this very southeastern tip of Spain, a place called Carboneras, where, where they filmed Lawrence of Arabia, um, when they moved out of Jordan. That's um, so 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 Eddie Fowley, Lean's Man Friday, his kind of right hand man, was still living in 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 Carboneras. So I went to see him and and um and then i went up to madrid to see a guy called pedro vidal pedro was the fir- was the first uh, assistant director on ryan's daughter and and he brought me into his small apartment in in madrid and and he he started showing me some mementos including he pulls out this big knife you know and he said this this is this is the knife this is uh, robert mitchum's um <laughs> the knife that he sold me and it, and he, it was a beautiful piece of german Engineering, I suppose you might call it, and it was a Puma White Hunter knife, um, a deadly weapon, a beautiful, uh, beautiful. And he said, uh, Robert Mitchum sold me this for a penny after I expressed my admiration for it, and um, and that was really extraordinary. That uh, extraordinary moment, actually, in my research when when I saw that, you know, and and that linked in there with a the it... story about the party when when so, when when some local idiot kind of. Uh, poked uh, Mitchum in the eye, um, and, and Mitchum went out. Uh, Mitchum's eye was bloodshot, but he said it went out to his car. He was he was enraged. He went out to his porch and he got his knife and he came looking for the guy. But thankfully, he didn't find him. Um, the guy at Scarpet. <laughs> a lot of a lot of the locals wanted. The, the, they loved Mitchum. Most of them. Mitchum used to walk around Dingle like do um, his shopping. Like Mitchum was on call, like everybody else, waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. And he was going, he was going crazy. Like um, he thought he'd have the opportunity to go to, to sort of take breaks in London, where he knew lots of people, and and even go back to LA um, to see his family and stuff. But, like he went to LA, you know, he, he he basically looked at the contract, he looked at the script, and he said, "I'd be able to take certain breaks here." Um, and they said, "Oh yeah, you can go away for a couple of weeks." And and I don't tell this story as well as Robert Mitchum tells it. Um, and I won't even try to put on the the English accents that Robert Mitchum puts on. But anyway, um, he gets home to his uh, family home in Bel Air. Next minute the phone rings, we need you back, you know, straight away. He's only just come in the door, so he has to fly back to to, uh, to Jingle. And then he he doesn't work for two weeks, three weeks. You know, he's just kept waiting again because the weather weather is rubbish or whatever. So he's he's just going absolutely uh, stir-crazy in Dingle, and he builds up a kind of resentment towards the producer particularly um and towards lean you know he blamed both of them for for making his life so miserable um and uh and he he didn't he didn't hold back particularly when it came to dealing with the producer
0: sure i think there's there's a really interesting uh Lesson to be gleaned here to kind of come back to that and just to sort of set the the stage a little bit for listeners who may not be that familiar with the film, which is not yet on Blu-ray, hopefully soon. Um, but uh, you know, it was it was also the first film in a very long time uh, that was a from an original script for Lean. It was something that Robert Bolt had written, loosely based on Madame Bovary, originally and set in France specifically as a vehicle for for sarah miles whom he had just married and who was 17 years his younger uh his junior and who was kind of an up-and-coming uh actress who had done a few things including joseph losey's the servant and you know robert bold obviously wanted to to make a star out of his wife and i think you know reading your book it seemed you, you i think you more or less uh make the same point that the there's a certain degree of um cockiness that bolt and lean had coming off of their successes with lawrence and dr jivago thinking that here they had adapted prior material and had these two great successes that they could do no wrong and they sat down together in rome and fleshed out this script and moved it from france to ireland and um kind of took a small story and turned it into a grand epic and perhaps didn't realize that much of what their prior success had been was inherited from the pre-existing material that perhaps they could not and should not necessarily generate something purely from scratch because it would bring out all of their own worst impulses unrestrained by pre-existing material would would you say that that's perhaps a fair assessment
1: uh yeah i i, I think so um well maybe Slightly, slightly harsh on, on Bolt, and um, in that he Bolt would have been a pretty creative guy who could generate his own material, with, rather than just adapting Seven Pillars of Wisdom as he did for Lawrence of Arabia, um, and then he 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 basically uh, for Doctor Zhivago he he had to distill um, the book, you know, which is a which kind is of huge. Yeah. epic you know and and he said it was like trying to straighten cobwebs um you know so he was kind of sick of um he was kind of sick of doing that really I think you know he he that's what he said anyway at the time you know he said I don't want to do any more of this you know this, this sort of stuff um and uh, they, they 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 look, they, they they tried to pass off Ryan's daughter as a totally original film um but and most people um accepted it as such and then afterwards they said oh we fooled you it was actually madame bovary dressed of you know dressed up in slightly different context, different time a different country et cetera, et cetera um but um yeah they they um they <laughs> i suppose um they were lean was a fierce romantic um he he didn't like uh bolt's original script which was which was Madame Bovary and just a straightforward adaptation of Madame bovary he didn't like it particularly but Lean had just fallen for uh, fallen in love with a young woman himself, um uh who became his fifth wife. He was married at the time to an Indian woman. And then when he was in India he met uh, yeah, I suppose you might call them like a he met a kind of a Western woman who was born in India to Swiss parents, a young girl. She was Sandy Lean, she was Sandy Hoth, she was twenty years of age. So he 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 kind of um he came to jingle with his young girlfriend really everyone kind of assumed it was probably his wife um and and so so he kind of originally dismissed Bold's picture uh b- Bolt's screen uh uh screenplay not screenplay Bold's script um because he thought bol both both sort of fallen for this sarah miles woman and he's kind of you know he's he's kind of lost it. he's he's lost the plot a bit and then, and then, sure enough, Lean then loses the plot by falling in love with a young girl himself. So that's what the kind of film is about. It's about kind of, um, you know, whether an older man stayed in his ways um, can satisfy, uh, you know, a young woman in terms of her expectations and, and, and what she wants out of life. Um, and... That, that, so that was what the that's what the, that's what part of what ryan's daughter is about it's about a young girl growing up and you know try, trying to wrestle with the with with, with with becoming a woman in a kind of a very kind of uh you might say uh kind of a where she doesn't have any empathy from the from the local people so um so she she, she then she marries this person who she thinks is the man of his dream, of her dreams but He's not. I mean, this is what what happens in the film. Uh, without, you know, I'm not giving the plot away. It's 50 years it made 50 years ago. So Robert Mitchum was playing the playing the older man, who, who's basically a bit of a, a, a flop in bed, essentially, can't really satisfy Rosie in that department, and and then she goes and runs off and having had an affair with of all people, um, you know, the, the, the a British army officer, you know, the occupying forces who the local people hate. So then 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 you have um. You have this kind of forbidden love aspect to the story so um yeah so it was uh it it didn't really have that kind of epic quality though that that say shivago or lawrence arabia had that which were kind of spread across kind of almost like generations and you know involved kind of epic kind of battles and conflicts and they were genuinely you know epic material ryan's door was really just a kind of a, a small love story um like like Leo McKern, who played the part of Ryan, um, the publican, uh, the father of of Rosie Ryan, uh, Ryan's daughter, you know, he said it was like a women's magazine story, really, which was a pretty, which was mm. meant as a criticism, and, and certainly came across as a strong criticism. So so yeah, it. it, it, it but but Lean was, you know, as, as the producer said, a part of the criticisms from Anthony Havelock Allen was that. Of, of Lean was that Lean was sort of in epic mode and he couldn't kind of snap out of it you know he he just couldn't um, and he kind of fell in love with the kind of rugged Irish countryside so it was this small little love story packaged in this no- enormous kind of uh, uh, vistas of, of landscapes and, 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 and some people said that the, the characters kind of became kind of microscopic set against the kind of big backdrops and, and I think that's probably a fair criticism although I'm I'm so biased because I love those backdrops. They're part of my. They're part of my childhood and you know, visiting there on holiday. That I can I can just soak them up all day, but not everybody can. Yeah, it's
0: funny that. Well, right? I, I I you know I saw the film projected uh, in 70 millimeter probably about ten, twelve, thirteen years ago at the the Academy here, the Samuel Goldman Theater at the Academy, yeah. and it was one of the most transcendent things I've ever seen. I mean, I had I had only seen the film in 35 or on video before. And this was my first time seeing it uh the way it was meant to be seen, the way it 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 had been originally seen. And it was I, I, I've never seen the beauty of Ireland captured more vigorously or, or uh vibrantly. I, it was yeah. it was really, really extraordinary. And I, I think the film has aged well, wait, to be wait. honest. It's it's, it's, wait, it's, it's it's interesting.
1: Wait, yeah. let me interrupt you there for a second, okay? Because I went to see it in LA as yeah. well. Um at the um at the uh, Academy Samuel Goldwyn Theatre on the 15th of November, yep. 2002. was that? Were you there?
0: I was there. So we were there at the same screening. That was it, yes.
1: And now it's taken us best part of 20 years to, to actually have a conversation. Yeah. That.
0: No, that's great. No, that was it. Yeah, I, I didn't think it was that long ago, but it was. It, it was 2002, yeah, for sure. Because that, that was the
1: day that... Um, they, uh, one of the Mills' daughters was there. Harriet or, or Juliet or one one of the, the she she was introduced. Do you remember that? No?
0: Yeah, that was that was an amazing screening. It was just luminous. And um as I understand it, I think that was I, I that I, I think Robert Harris told me that was an answer print, but I'm not quite sure. But still, I mean it was extraordinary. And The thing that I find most interesting, too, uh, in that respect, is that it was the last of the great 70 millimeter films shot in 65 until Far and Away with Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman, which was also Irish and which I saw at the Cannes Film Festival when it came around. But, you know, this film not only ended Lean's career through the 70s and into the beginning of the 80s, but it ended the 70 millimeter moment that was so dominant in the 1960s it, it really was the last of a certain breed of film and i don't think it it meant to be but it wound up being um do you do you think that that in in many respects that the the film's box office failure at the time uh reverberated in that way did it did it sort of send a chill down some people's spines about trying to go and make another one of these big widescreen epics
1: um look I, i'm probably not the best person to, to sort of uh answer that except to say that um you know making making a movie in in 70 millimeters 65 70 millimeter it's incredibly expensive um you know you've got to you've got to um, a, you you need massive lighting. This is what Lean found. He had to he had to get in these huge lamp uh, l- l- brutes. They called them brutes at the time. Um, these things weighed, you know, they were a ton. They weighed a ton. So everything was bigger. The, the 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 lamps, the stands, the the track that it ran on, the cranes, everything was just like a enormous logistical, uh, you know, exercise. Um, he he had shot uh, Zhivago in 35 mm and uh, and won and and it was you know it had won oscars uh for for freddie young who who was the uh, director of photography the cameraman uh young won an oscar for virtually every movie lean movie he worked on including Ryan's daughter um, and 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 young was sort of happy enough with 35 mm but but david lean was a, was insistent on on 70 mm i i think partly because he he had got to the stage where he could call the shots exactly as he wanted to do it, and he wanted to go back to the, to the 70 mil that he had shot Lawrence of Arabia uh, with, um, and I, 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 everything was contracting, you know, post Ryan's daughter, as we talked about earlier with the budgets for films. Um, sort of the power of television was 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 enormous. Um, 70 millimeter meant nothing and it didn't work for television, does it? You'll know as well as I would, Wade. Um, so I suppose a lot of the, the screens were probably changing as well. You need a, a massive screen to show that kind of uh, that kind of wide format, don't you? But on the square, screen, you need a big. Yes. You need a massive, um, almost like a letterbox kind of screen. Um, so, so yeah, it's. Um, I, I think there was other things came in, wasn't there? there was other kind of fads came in in terms of the. You know the way that they shot film, um, and uh, there was all sorts of you know Panavision and all sorts of things being. Uh, I'm not sure I've got the name right there, but it was it it was a. I think probably um, as you say the logistics and the expense of shooting a seven millimeter, seventy millimeter were, were 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 enormous, and and probably and probably Ryan's daughter. It wasn't a particularly successful movie, and 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 so probably people felt it was an object lesson in in in. In excessive spending, and, and they, they 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 moved away from that form of shooting.
0: How many of the uh, of the people involved are still alive? I know Sarah Miles is still alive and and bounces around between Europe and and here in Los Angeles. If I if I've understood correctly, but is Sarah really the last, or are there any key figures that are still with us?
1: Uh, Sarah is. from very alive and kicking for sure yeah she is she's a very vigorous 78 79 year old woman um in great health i saw her about a year ago the last time down in her lovely um sort of uh, manor house in um in uh west sussex uh south of london um where she i think she still nurtures uh plans to do a sequel to Ryan's daughter um which uh she's been working on. Um now that's that's a kind of a uh a semi secret and I'm not sure if it's if it's ever gonna happen but um but she uh so she kind of um no, I, I think she has spent some time in the life she's really the last big figure alive Wade really from the film. Sadly, Christopher Jones died about seven or eight years ago. Um, you know, Mitchum uh, died in sort of 1997. Uh, I'm trying to think of anybody else really who's kind of a, a star or, or kind of a uh, and really no, they're, they're sadly they're all they've all parted. But I, I did speak to uh, Christopher um, when I went to Los Angeles um, back in 2002. Um, and um I spoke to John Mills before he died. And um and so and some of the Irish actors as well. There's a few of the Irish actors are, are still alive. But no, really Sarah, as you say, Sarah is is really the, the last living um the living reminder of the film. Except if you consider Olivia Hussey who 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 wasn't in the film but was Christopher Jones' girlfriend. When he was shooting Ryan's daughter, Olivia Hussey, the star of Romeo and Juliet around that time, that's another story. So, yes, yeah, it's great, Sarah's still alive,
0: yeah. It, it, and, and I have to say, too, that is one of the things that I most enjoyed are the the little tangential stories about how this connects. Everything, Ryan's daughter winds up being a very strange hub to a lot of other goings-on that Christopher Jones's managers... Uh, that the, the, they, you know, while well they a gay couple who were on kind of uh, on holiday more or less during the film, that they had rented out their house to Roman Polanski and Sharon Tate, and suddenly all of you know when you when you share those anecdotes, it it, it enlarges the world of Ryan's daughter. Uh, or when Pedro heads to Los Angeles to uh, to try to talk Marlon Brando into taking the part that Christopher Jones eventually took, and you have a very very funny anecdote about that as well. I mean, there are all of these wonderful peripheral stories that just sort of paint a picture not just of this production but of Hollywood at this very eccentric moment in of time when it was changing from the culture of of the studios to a you know a bit more of a, a lazy kind of counterculture independent world of the late 60s and, and 70s it really does seem to be this transitional moment and many of them I mean, Christopher Jones, certainly, because he had made a lot of these very popular counterculture films. But, um, you know, a lot of them, like Lean, weren't really ready for that change. And uh, I think you paint that world very, very beautifully. And you paint that that moment in time very, very uh, vibrantly as well.
1: Yeah, no, it was, um, you know, I was kind of hoping the the book would come out in 69 rather than um, 1970. uh, Because... I was so taken by that whole uh, tragedy of the um well you know the the Manson family murders of of uh, of Tate yeah. and and her friends and in 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 that house in in Cielo Drive is that the, if if, you, if that's how you pronounce it and and yeah. um, of course yeah. um uh you know it's all come up again in once upon a time in Hollywood you know we we've just you know where where um if you look if you look at once upon a time in Hollywood closely you see all the references to Christopher Jones in that film you know uh Tarantino's obsessed by Christopher Jones um he tried to get yeah. Christopher Jones to play a part in Pulp Fiction um the part of Zed uh which was had no attraction for Jones because it was a pretty gory um part um but um yeah the the um you know the it's sort of all these Troubles kind of coming in, you know, are, are kind of impacting on, on. They're spending so long in Dingle, and all these all these troubles are coming impacting, coming in and out. Like, you have the trouble up in Northern Ireland just just starting off, you know. Um, so you've got uh, then you've got the the the, the murders of Sharon Tate and her friends, um, you know, affecting what's happening in 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 Ryan, you know, thousands of miles away in a small little village in Ireland, because Christopher Jones was kind of um was sort of was said to be having an affair with Sharon not necessarily at that time but a few months previously and and was a good friend of of Sharon Tate's and and it kind of really messed his head and and really affected uh, him in terms of the shooting of Ryan's daughter he he had a lot of mental problems around that time and 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 lean couldn't find it very difficult working with them um and 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 I didn't really sort of have any sympathy for the fact that this was a very kind of um, uh, a very kind of confused young man, you know, going through through a difficult period, you know, making the biggest movie of his life. As you said, he, he had made a few counterculture movies, and he made a movie called The Looking Glass War, but this was his big kind of break, you know, getting this part in Ryan's daughter, Christopher Jones, who who kind of, um, who was really struggling to to get up to the task, frankly, and, and kind of held, delayed the movie a lot because they had so many problems getting him to to uh, to to play the part properly and um, and yeah it didn't help like that uh, that that the 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 murders of Sharon Tate and her friends really badly affected Christopher Jones and and he also crashed his car as Ferrari as you probably remember you know almost lost his life yeah. you know some people said he was trying to commit suicide I spoke to Christopher and he strongly denied that um, and I found Christopher a very engaging uh, individual I have to say. Um, yeah, so and then and then when when the movie's over, Christopher goes back and lives in the same in in that same house, uh, lived in Cielo Drive, um, in 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 the lodge in the sort of gate lodge, and and he and he kind of he he, he dropped out, he, you know, he became part of the counterculture himself. He became a kind of like a hippie, even though he never really embraced uh, that, that particular movement up till that time. So. The Christopher Jones story is one of the kind of one of the most interesting parts of the book. What happened to Christopher Jones? And and um, and, and 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 perhaps you know, uh, I, I don't, I'm not saying Ryan's daughter was cursed. I, I mean that's just it's just too flippant to say that. But you know there was two people going into that movie who were going to be who were supposed to become superstars. One of them was Sarah Miles, and one of them was Christopher Jones. And and both of their careers kind of declined very very sharply after that. Christopher virtually never made another movie again, and Sarah had a huge problem post Ryan's daughter uh, over the death of David Whiting, her manager. You know, when they were shooting a film right. in, in uh, over in Arizona, um, and and that and 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 kind of she said she became blacklisted by by Hollywood uh, over that. Um, I think they just did, I think Hollywood just couldn't cope with Sarah. She was too she was too wild. You know, she was too much of a. She was she was too much of an alternative kind of character, really. And and um, yeah, so so that was that was one of the legacies of Ryan's daughter was the fact that those two actors really kind of uh, it didn't work for them, frankly. You know, that, that that's sort of part of the reason as to why Ryan's daughter
0: is is in some
1: way seen as a bit of a failure.
0: You know and and it's funny because again, I think the film has aged beautifully with time i I think unless you know all of these backstories to it, unless you know all of the problems, I think watching it today it just feels like a wonderful, wonderful throwback to a kind of film that just doesn't exist anymore. And there's something sort of deliriously romantic about it. Uh, and again, unless you know all of the problems, you would never see them necessarily on the screen, at least not with our 50, to 50 years of hindsight. Um, but there's, there's also, I think you do a, a much better job of sort of painting a picture of that moment later on when the National Society of Film Critics had Lean as a guest and they all basically... Ganged up and attacked him, which shows up in obviously all the other Lean biographies, and most significantly in in the Brownlow. But you really paint it much more in detail here, and it's interesting because Richard Schickel, being the one who sort of attacked Lean initially, Schickel was a, a colleague of ours for many years before he passed with the LA Film Critics as well. So I, I got to know him to, as well as I think anybody could get to know Dick Schickel, who was by that point was a was a pretty crusty curmudgeon, but. I think what comes out the way that you write it is perhaps that there was not as much ill intent as Lean may have perceived. And I I could certainly having known Schickle, I could see that when he the the very sort of famous dig that he takes at Lean initially, I I could almost see Schickel thinking that he was being cute and perhaps adorably impertinent and not necessarily understanding that someone would take that as an insult um so i mean i again it's really you paint that picture very very well uh, as well do you do you also feel that perhaps the film has aged much better and that we we see it through not to you know pun intended but rose-colored glasses
1: yeah i do i I totally take your point about the fact that they really don't make movies like that anymore and and it 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 still looks absolutely stunning you know It, it, it um it's you know it, it, visually it's just incredibly powerful film and, and um you know it's uh, it's quite slow moving but you know uh, i i think it, it it it's really kind of um it really takes you to a different world completely um and i even as an irishman I, i'd say that it, you know um uh i think the ending they they didn't quite get the ending right but um we can forgive them that um I think with the Schickle thing, uh, you know, it, it, funny because Stephen Silverman is the guy who kind of um, who I think is probably a colleague of yours as well. Like, uh, yes, Stephen, I know Stephen well. guy to, to talk to about because lean. It was in Stephen's book on David Lean that 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 that's that, that uh, Lean really laid into Schickle over that meeting at the, in the Algonquin Hotel in New York um, in November 1970. Uh, you know, he said that Schickle had um, Schickle had said, you know, how could how could a, how could the guy who directed Lawrence of Arabia make this pile of shit? Um, which really would be a very which would which would be an insulting thing for anybody to say to Lean. Um, I, I, I Shikle argued that 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 Schickle argued that, that that that's not how the 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 um, the meeting opened, as Lean claimed. Lean Lean claimed that was part of Schickle's opening remarks. Schickle has a different, interp- different memory of it. And he said that, that he made that remark or a similar remark maybe an hour into the meeting when he was, said he was trying to sum up what the kind of critics were saying <laughs> to David. And, 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 and Schickle said that he didn't use the word shit. He used, he used the word piece of bullshit. And, 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 um, <laughs> and, and uh, Schickle argues, uh, argued strongly in a letter to, to Brownlow leans biographer that bullshit is not as kind of offensive a word certainly in an american context as shit is so you know i hope you know i hope you don't mind me using that kind of language you know it's it's,
0: oh no it's 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 Uh, the the historical record I, i have to say having been having been on many email chains with richard schickel over the years uh I, I I am inclined to take Lean's version of that story much more. Really, so. Right? so Richard Schickel's, uh, wow. yeah, Schickel's. I mean, I, I, well, a lot of us have saved those email chains for posterity because Schickel's mm-hmm. uh, forethought was, even if he was not being malicious, his his lack of forethought certainly comes through. There was there was an instinctual kind of curmudgeonliness to him well, that uh, yeah. you, you sort of have to you have to you, sometimes you read twice and go, did he really just did he really just write that to the whole group? And in fact, he did. So um, none of that surprised me in the least.
1: Well, Lean, Lean, I I kind of, I took Schickle's side slightly because Lean, Lean like Lean would kind of famously kind of forget things that he didn't like or didn't and slightly, slightly twist, uh, you know, the facts uh, to suit himself, I think, on some on some occasions. And, you know, his recollection of things wasn't always 100 percent, but um i mean i, I you know the, the, probably the main villain of that piece in inverted commas, in villain inverted was pauline kale she she was the most um, sure. vituperative uh and 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 um and was <coughs> the, uh, she yeah, was the it, most, she was the most vituperative and she was completely unapologetic about that um
0: and um which and, is which and, is certainly in keeping with her character.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly. And um, so, uh, so, so she was apparently the one who was kind of the most, the most uh, offensive, really, if you will. And um, and I think uh, and Lean certainly remembered all that, you know. Um, but he he kind of found Kale to be quite an attractive woman as well. So, which probably not all directors would would would, would share that opinion, but yeah I m um, i don't suppose you knew you don't you didn't know pauline kale as well did you probably you, you knew her as well Wade. i
0: i did not know pauline kale uh but a, a number of my colleagues are considered uh what they call uh um pauline's or there there's a term for it that's Escaping me right now, but okay. uh, they were acolytes of hers, and oh, kind of yeah. came out from under her thumb. Um, you know, a, a radio colleague of mine, Peter Rayner, who writes for the Christian Science Monitor, was one of was one of her close associates as well. So I, I, I've heard many many uh, stories about Pauline, certainly second, yeah. uh, first hand, second hand. I
1: mean, yeah. yeah. Anyway, look, I, we're, 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 I, I'm digressing slightly, but but she um, she would have. Um, she wouldn't have held back, no doubt. She, she, of course, she, she was kind of like I think she prided herself. I think she's is she a New Yorker? I'm not sure, but she was very much of that. You know, she went out, she left the meeting, and she kind of, um, and she, uh, Lean's girlfriend, you know, later to be wife, who we've talked about before, Sandy Lean, was waiting outside, um, along with a guy called Nat Vice. You probably heard of him, uh, of MGM and yeah. MGM publicist, and his wife. And, um, and Kale sort of grabbed Sandy by the hand and, and said, um, you got to come into this meeting, you know, we need some dames in here, you know, we need some, there, there, there's too much, um, testosterone, pour, you know, pouring around uh, in there. We need, we need to sort of lighten the mood a bit, you know, and she tried to drag, um, Sandy lean, in, Sandy Holtz as she was at the time, into the, um, into the, into the sort of, uh, Banqueting hall where they were having the, the meeting, and Sandy was having none of it. So, uh, so that was that was uh, you know. I mean, I think there would have been a lot of the, the critics would have would have uh, there would have been a lot of kind of bitchiness among the critics as well. And I think that uh, you know, uh, Shickle Shickle certainly felt that Kale was kind of monstering the, the the whole meeting. You know, and perhaps that that might be. You know, I can well believe that to be the case.
0: Paul, thank you again, and uh, I will encourage all of our listeners to definitely pick this book up. It is a wonderful, wonderful lesson in uh, in filmmaking and in a, an era bygone. Making Ryan's Daughter, The Myths, Madness, and Mastery by Paul Benedict Rowan. <laughs>